Welcome to the platform journey, where we explore what it takes to build a successful software platform company and get the ecosystem flywheel going. We will interview seasoned innovators who have traveled this road before and can help navigate the way and share their lessons. All right, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Platform Journey. And this is part three of our conversation with Alan Adler. Alan is a managing partner of Digital Bridge. And we've been talking for the past couple of sessions about how do you monetize technology partner ecosystems? And in the first one, we covered why does that matter? Why is it important? Second, we started talking a bit about what are some of the different models that have been out there for monetization. And today we're going to talk a lot more about the how, you know, how do you do this and what are some of the lessons learned and some of the challenges in getting this off the ground. So with that, Alan, welcome back. Hey, it's great. We're actually have enough content for three podcasts. That's pretty amazing, right? Well, and as you said before, we could probably do this for longer, but anyway, we don't want to take everybody's too much of uh, everybody's time, but I think these are fantastic discussions. And have gotten great feedback so far. So, Alan, again, we did a bit of the context setting. You're always very good at kicking off with that. So why don't we, let me turn it over to you, do a bit of the context setting. So we're going to talk about the how. How would you want to set context for this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, we're in some challenging times for partnerships in general, for technology partnerships specifically. A lot having to do with the fact that we as a community have yet to produce what we call efficient, predictable, and scalable results. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing layoffs and and a lack of investment and attention from the CRO. So I think the context for this session should be, what are some examples of companies that have crossed the chasm and been able to programmatize and scale what we all want to do, which is create these efficient, predictable, and scalable revenues? So I think that's really the context. Examples of lessons learned and specific companies that have actually done it and what we can take away from that. Perfect. That's great. So let's talk a bit about the evolution first, right? How how have you seen, We, we last time we spoke about some of them in, in part two, we spoke about some of the different models. But I think one thing that's been somewhat unsaid is, hey, these things evolve, right? It's not one and done. And there's, again, changes, there is new information, there's new technologies, new programs. So talk a bit about what you've seen from an evolution of some of these monetization approaches and how do you, how do you assess that and how do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the most longest standing and not necessarily most successful monetization model has been what we call the tax model or the rev share model. That's actually been around for a long time. And if you really go back to the early days of Salesforce and other environments, you saw rev shares uh, existing as kind of like the first wave of how tech partnerships got monetized. And then over time, we start to see the evolution of different models, like the monetization model moving more toward a consumption-based approach and away necessarily of a rev share. Or now what we're seeing in our latest releases of referral engines where you can now start doing referrals at scale. So instead of the monetization being a dollars exchanged, now the monetization is relationships exchanging leads. I give a lead to you, you give a lead to me. So 
I think we've gone from a purely monetary model, if you will, at the beginning to some more, I would argue, strategic connections like uh, consumption economics, like referrals at scale. And those types of evolutions have, I think, caused us to rethink the way we want to compensate and monetize these relationships versus the traditional, uh, put it in the marketplace and I'll take 20%. So I think that's at least one st- I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's, you've, seen, you've seen all of this. Yeah. And, I, and frankly, I think they all still somewhat coexist in some way, shape or form. But it also feels to me that it's important to understand, you know, when things evolve, there's reasons for it to evolve, right? And is understand what are some of the drivers, right? What are some of the incentive systems? What are some of the pricing models? What are some of the operating models? And and having clarity about that. So example, where you talked about the, you know, the ref share model that started out with, you know, Salesforce and some others. I mean, the idea of candidate there was, we don't know if this is going to fly. It was a bit of a shared risk model, which said, you know, getting someone to develop on our platform is essentially free. The rev share kicks in when you actually start selling. And if you don't, no harm, no foul, right? And then, you know, the philosophy we, we had there was we succeed when you succeed, right? Which was a way to kind of manage a risk. You know, when you get into the consumption-based approach, for example, Frankly, the challenge there is the underlying bits and bytes and photons that are being consumed, they have a cost. And that kind of became a different, hey, as you consume this, someone's got to pay for it, right? And so I think that was a, you know, a different, is a different form of, of driver. And when you think about especially the infrastructure folks, their programs tend to be, hey, you have to become a customer first, pay for the consumption of your infrastructure, and then let's figure out along with that, what is the uh, joint go-to-market model. Right. Something you said last time that I think was really important was when the monetization is linked to the business model and there are uh, substantive drivers that the CFO and the CEO and the CPO all recognize as being instrumental to the success of the company, then it's much easier to work the tech partner monetization because it's connected at the business model. It's connected at the rev share right. or at the driver of consumption or whatever is that metrics. But I think if we look at the history, we can actually put tech partner monetization into one of three buckets. It's either ARR related. That is to say, because of the tech partner, we're able to drive net new. It's NRR related. It's because the tech partner, we're able to drive uh, additional consumption. So the hyperscalers, the data companies like Snowflakes and Databricks, they're all like that. or it's able to drive NPS, uh, which is usually a function of seeing customers saying, I need this stuff if you want me to stick with you, and I need this stuff to give me the end-to-end solutions. So I think if we use those foundations of ARR, NRR, and NPS, and this notion of it's more than just rev share, we see the arc of the history of tech partner monetization, and we can now go into some specific examples and how that's worked. Love it. Yeah, I think that you know having those... TLAs or three-letter acronyms as part of the framework, I think is, is super important because I think it does give, as we've always said, there has to be measurability, right? And that has been I think one of the positive evolutions of the this ecosystem frameworks is ability to measure it, right? And have credible metrics uh, that can be tied to it. So let's dive into the example because I think that was one of the things we've been dangling since the first conversation. And I think that's what gets people excited is to understand 
what are some successful models, what are lessons learned from that, and also what are things maybe not to not to do. So talk to me about one or two that you've been particularly excited about and you know share as much as you can about those stories. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I thought in order to make a connectivity between the second discussion where we talked about the models and the success models, we should come back to the three models we talked about. So we talked about rev share or the tax model. We talked about the uh, mutuality model where you know I help you help me. Um, and we talked about the reciprocal model where I give you leads and you give me back leads. And so maybe we'll take an example of each of those. And what I thought would be really exciting to do is to like identify the core outcomes and the drivers of those outcomes. So someone can go, oh, I see in order to achieve that goal, we need to do these things. We should expect this outcome and then maybe some leading and lagging indicators in there. So let's start first with uh, with the rev share. So a good example of a company that I think is doing a really great job with this is Procore. So one of our clients, they're in the construction vertical. And one of the things they discovered early on is that their platform needed all these integrated partners in order to complete their solutions. This is somewhat similar to what Salesforce discovered back in the day where you know it was all about complement, extend, complete, some aspect of make the product more robust. And, you know, sales engineers, sales AEs are all saying, you know, I got to have this thing to close the deal. Well, Procore did a really nice job of building a platform and then building these integrations so they would be able to have three or 400 different ISVs. But they ran into a challenge because their AEs, you know, how many, how many integration partners can an AE sell? They have enough problems selling a complex offering. And you and I both know that one of the things you don't want to try to do is to cram partners into the AE's bucket and then try to manipulate the compensation system so that they do work. It takes forever to do. It's tin cupping. It doesn't work. And it's hard. It's, I mean, the attention span becomes a challenge, right? How do you keep track of so many? 100% number of our clients were just saying, I just cannot get these AEs to sell this stuff. So what they did, it was smart, is they went back to product marketing. And they say, what if we actually bundled solutions that include our our stuff and the partner stuff and actually create SKUs or families of products that were like in this bucket was our product and two or three other products that are partner driven. And so then the enablement that came down to the sales organization was of a SKU that included partner and included their products so that it was more like the product was already integrated at product marketing. So when it got down to sales, was less of a challenge. And, and that resulted in a much higher level of adoption, a much higher level of engagement, a much, much higher uh, orientation around how to make that happen. And of course, they're still early days like everybody is. But the decision to put, put product marketing at the front before it got to sales meant that there was a lot less need to kind of come at the sales team sideways versus the traditional go-to-market model, which is come at product marketing sales. It's a much cleaner story if you start at the top. Yeah, let me ask one question to clarify on that one. When you say they created SKUs, so this was Procore itself creating these bundled SKUs, but is a transaction then happening effectively as a, you know, what we would call a resell, kind of a packaged? Yeah, that's a good question. It's in some instances, like the hyperscalers, the marketplaces are transactable. Correct. Mostly they're not. And in a B2B SaaS environment, it's very hard in a complex bundle or SKU to have it be transactable at a point of sale. So rather than it being transactable, it was the, the opportunity to the customer to be differentiated in the bundle happened at the at Tofu at the top of the funnel. But when you got to the bottom of the funnel, each of the individual reps associated with each of the software companies still has to seek responsibility for selling. Got it. So it's not a perfect solution in that regard, but it's better than trying to come at it sideways. Correct. And just for, for clarity, right? So it means 
the value proposition is of the bundle. So the education of the market and the customer is like, hey, these things are in fact better together. But the actual transaction, and then of course with that support terms and everything else that that has to be put in place is done with each individual vendor in that in that scenario. So that's right. Exactly Got right. It. So that's so that's a good example of a rev share example. And in this case too, that different models have different sort of compensation structures. So a rev share in this case is one in which the the partner is paying a portion of what they sell back to Procore so that there is in essence a return on investment to the sales team for selling it. So then you can relieve quota at an AE level associated with that downstream transaction, as opposed to it just being um, do it because you feel like it, right? So there's a way for the sales reps to get relief and there's a way for Procore customers to get a better solution and the partners win, the AE wins, the customer wins, and Procore wins. So that's that's a good example of thinking about tech partner monetization at the marketing level and then using a rev share model and a bundle approach in order to create that more integrated offering that then leads to all that value add. So I can't share the I can't share the metrics on that. I'll share some other metrics on some of the other examples. But again, there's some rules to follow. And what's interesting about that one also is that any company who's trying to monetize tech partnerships needs to understand where they sit in the relative customer stack. Procore is an advantage situation because they are they, they are the leader in in construction vertical so that they can then take the other partners to surround that. It's almost like they're the steak on the plate. And it's pretty easy to add broccoli, veggies, and soup, and whatnot. And they're kind of the system of record in some ways for that for that category, right? So the core data sits in, in Procore, and then you integrate into it because that's what the customer wants. So steak first. Got it. Exactly. So that's the rev share tax model, example, yep. metrics, outcomes. Let's take the next one, which is the which is the mutuality model. That was where we agreed, like in the consumption environment, where you know if you help me consume, if you help my customers consume my pipe, I get better NRR results, and accordingly, I'm willing to include you in a deal, and I make it easy for you to work with us. So let's let's take a look at at what Snowflake. We mentioned them last time, but let's go into a little more detail about what they've done and why it's really worked. So as we mentioned before, uh, new data point. You know, they're even at a down market. Their NRR is still in the 150s, there was in the 160s before. So they're able to maintain that. We also talked about the fact that much as a third of that NRR is coming from these ISVs, uh, which is really amazing. I think the important thing to observe with, with them and to learn from the masters is that they figured out a way to teach their sales reps to look at their CRM and see the actual consumption patterns within CRM. So, this, so the AE can actually look at the CRM and see, oh, look, Informatica or Matillion is now consuming, my customer is now using Matillion or Informatica to consume my pipe. And I can then use that to say, oh, where else can I drive that consumption? So that was a really powerful way because they had actual consumption data sitting in the AE's CRM. By workload, basically. By for workload. Each, for, each, for each separate workload. Okay. Which is not an easy problem, but that's great. That is always one of the, one of the challenges, I think, in those environments. Absolutely. And and the other thing that makes that exciting is that you're not guessing about like what is working and what is not working. You know if you're if you're an AE and you're being comp to be to get to that 150 NRR and you can see which ISVs drive that, then you're in a position to know which levers to move. You can pile on. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing that they did, which was really exciting, is that 
they started looking at how to turn ISVs from being like flavor adders to the meal to actually being the whole meal. So by vertical, they picked ISVs who, who use their powered by methodology to actually build their Snowflake backend into their ISV application itself. And when they did that, um, all the other ISVs who wanted access to that particular ISV now had to come into the platform and you've got these huge network effects growing. So these were some really, really amazing, let's call them tech partner monetization motions that were explicit. Let's go to a different ISV to achieve a different outcome. And they did that in the retail environment. They did that in the financial services environment. And in each case, there was a lead pin ISV. Uh, and that lead pin ISV was treated kind of half as a customer and half yeah. as a partner, which is a really interesting dimension. But, but they're the anchor tenant for that either problem statement or for that industry then. Exactly. And they're the reason the other ISVs want to come in. Correct. Correct. They recognize that magnetic effect. As soon as that data became, became accessible, it could be anonymized, it could be aggregated, it could be accessed, it could be shared. And that's their whole model is you know, taking this data and sending it all these different places and have it uh, move around. Yeah. But there is, I think, one other takeaway there, right? Which is just from, a, again, pattern recognition perspective, that someone like a Snowflake is, at the end of the day, is an amazing infrastructure provider. But it's the applications sitting on top of that are the ones obviously going to drive the consumption. So they went out and identified who are those high consumption vendors, ISVs, partners, and said, hey, let's let's do this together. And back, back to your point, you know, they scratch each other's back and kind of rise, uh, all, all boats rise with that, right? Uh, no, that make, that's, a, again, I think it's a great example. Yeah. Another example in that same environment is the hyperscalers. You know, one of the reasons the hyperscalers went after SAP so aggressively in the early days was because they figured out that if you got SAP sitting in your hyperscaler stack, you saw eight times the SAP consumption for all the other things that talk to SAP. So how much money would Google spend talking to Accenture to get them to do a, a free lift and shift on SAP? The answer is a lot. And so it's 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 a it's you're basically you're basically banking that customer once you get the SAP in there that NRR is going to spike and so that's why this big race to find the workloads you're exactly right it's the key workloads that all, that ISVs are workloads that's what an ISV is predominantly right it's find those key workloads lock them in and NRR spikes so that's another that's a great example of that second category right and you're not pitching a you got to move from A to B. You're still saying, hey, we we understand that that is your primary, you know, partner slash vendor for that business process, back office, front office, industry applications, but we'll move them to a kind of a much more modern stack and, and consumption based model, and then bring along with that the others. Yes. Yeah, hundred um, yeah. percent. And again, having lived that, that model works. So certainly can tell you that that's a. I think that's that's a model that's here to stay. Talk about the third one. That's yes. That's our favorite. That one. I think is there is something really intriguing in what what you've been doing and thinking, and I think it's something that might be part of that as yes. things transition, as we were seeing in the beginning. So talk about that one. Absolutely. So the third model, which we call the reciprocity model or the reciprocal model, is based on the idea that if two ISVs are working together, 
it doesn't make a lot of sense to to pay them to provide leads like a classic channel environment. You know, I'll give you a spiff, or I'll give you a commission, or you get a resell discount because they because they don't operate like that. No no ISV wakes up one morning and say, what other ISV can I sell today? That's just not how ISVs operate, right? They sell their thing. So what was what was fascinating was Chris Lavoie, who who recently joined us as a Go to Eco strategic advisor, when he was at Gorgeous prior to joining us, he developed this outbound inbound playbook model where he was trying to figure out how to get leads from his top ISVs. So in this case, Gorgeous, a top ISV they work with is Clavio, and we both know Clavio. And Clavio was the 800-pound gorilla, you know, in this Shopify, big commerce sort of space. And Gorgeous wanted to figure out, like, how could I get Clavio to give me leads? Because Clavio's got a lot more customers than we do. If we could get Clavio to give us leads, we are in business. So what Chris did, which was quite smart, is he said, why don't I give Clavio a lot of leads? If I give Clavio a lot of leads, they'll give me a lot of leads. And you know what? Lo and behold, you looked at the data on how many leads came from Clavio versus how many leads Gorgeous provided. They were linked inexorably. Zeros and zeros on one side. As soon as Clavio started getting leads from Gorgeous, Clavio started giving leads back to Gorgeous. And Clavio, Gorgeous became Clavio's number one source of opportunities, and uh, Gorgeous became uh, vice versa. So the question was, Okay, that's a great idea, but how the hell do you do that? Do you go to the customer success team and train 23-year-olds to ask consultative questions during the onboarding process? Probably not, right? That's not going to work. Do you try to get the Gainsights software to work? And it doesn't work. So this is one of those classic problems in tech partners. In fact, it's a classic problem in all ecosystems that how do you get the other departments to participate? And so what Chris figured out, which was quite genius, was why don't we conduct insight surveys, deep insight surveys of our customers after they have bought our product to find out what they want that surrounds our product? And uh, although you may think this is hard to do and impossible to do, he was actually able to get phenomenal results from uh, getting the customer success teams at various points in the onboarding process, as well as having a junior PM uh, partner manager on his team essentially administer these surveys at scale. Got tremendous response rates, like 34% of all customers ended up completing the survey, and 74% of the ones that did complete the survey specifically asked to be introduced to a certified partner, which is phenomenal, right? So as a result of that, they got 3x more referrals to partners and 2x more referrals back from partners within 6 to 12 months after initiating this. And that led to you know a, a significant percentage of the total ARR that Gorgeous generates coming just from this reciprocal engine where you give the leads out and you get the leads back. So pretty exciting uh, example. So Alan, let's step a little bit up from that one. And from, a, again, pattern recognition slash examples perspective, right? So what I'm hearing is in this, in this particular scenario, one partner, Gorgeous, defined or identify a need, which was, hey, there's a complementarity between what we do and what, in this case, Clavio does under the broad Shopify ecosystem umbrella. And what Gorgeous does is not what Clavio does and vice versa, but the typical customer who's got Shopify is kind of their core system of commerce needs the loyalty marketing components and customer marketing elements of Clavio and needs the support capabilities of Gorgeous. 
So it was really, if I can put it in my words, it was building a solution map for that customer and seeing what are the things that kind of go better together and that ultimately the customer should have all these kind of work in tandem. Is that, I'm starting to come up with a, you know, a framework or a tool that says, how do you go thinking about that? Yes. Well, I, I think that there were some big assists that came from certain things that preceded this playbook. The first one was they had already built integrations with the surrounding technologies that the customers demanded. So it wasn't just Clavio. There was, you know, Loop Returns. It does the returns process. There were there were dozens of other companies surrounding surrounding Gorgeous that they'd already built integrations with, that they already had some aspect of a better together story with, and they were already able to profile the gorgeous plus that company story. So when they went to, to build the survey, the inside survey, they weren't starting from a white sheet of paper. Chris actually started with a, a whole bunch of hypotheses that if I ask these questions about these partners, I'm likely to get a customer to say, I have that pain point with respect to that use case that we talked about in our first two sessions. So the customer says, that use case I want, please introduce me to Clavio, Loop Returns, whomever, who will actually tell me about how I can buy that. That's the magic. Perfect. Cool. So again, great color. And I think it, it kind of brings it to life with, you know, very, very different engagement models, different industries, different companies. One thing that always comes up in these situations is how do I measure success? So we talk about NRR, we talk about ARR, we talk about NPS. Obviously those are important metrics, but I think if someone is a ecosystem leader, someone is a partner manager, that's kind of the the readout they're going to provide to the rest of the organization. But on a day-to-day basis, I'm going to state that there are other metrics. And obviously this is a journey. It's a long journey, as we always say. So year one metrics versus year two versus year three could be quite different. How do you measure success? What are some of the metrics for each of those three models that you would say are you know top two or three things to, to consider? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that we can all agree that the lagging indicator of of choice is sourced revenue from partner. There's a big debate that's gone on in the ecosystem community about source versus influence revenue. Everyone who's run partner programs has done this yeah. a thousand times. Yeah. And I've always been a big believer, right, that that we should look beyond sourced revenue because influence revenue is so powerful. But you know what? We're in a recession. And anybody who's out there trying to explain why influence revenue is a really good idea and why we were able to influence 5% of this or 10% of that is fighting a losing battle, especially if he wants revenue or she wants revenue right now or resources. So our philosophy is let's everything we do in tech partner monetization, have it come back to sourced revenue attribution. So if we start with that, right, if we start with like, you know, some indicator that says, how do we measure whether or not the inclusion of the partner resulted in sourced revenue, that's always beneficial. Now, it's not always doable in certain of these models. In the case of the reciprocity model, it's 100% sourced revenue because the lead I give to the partner, they wouldn't have gotten. And the lead they give me back, I wouldn't have gotten pure sourced revenue. So in the reciprocity model, that's one of the beauties of that. It's pure sourced revenue. But, But even in that model, that's a lagging indicator. And the worst thing partner leaders have going for them is that they expect everyone is expecting the lagging indicator, but they don't know how to sell the leading indicator. And so how many times have you seen this problem, right? 
where you're saying, trust me, trust me, it's coming, it's coming, you're fired, your program is shit too late, right? Yeah, yeah, it's too late. So, so there was a really powerful leading indicator that Chris came up with that was really powerful. And we've, we've instantiated this in our playbook now, which is what we call the lead to demo KPI. How many of the leads that I provided to you resulted in you having a demo? Okay. So an actual, actual, an actual engagement. Exactly. Why such a, such a good measure? Because, because it, it actually measures value created and value uh, received. In other words, like when, if you have a demo for one of my referrals, you have no doubt had value. No one's going to argue. Now, did you close that business? It's a lead quality metric exactly. that says the person exactly. is in fact interested. Got it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It also, it is also a measure of how good is my lead? Because if my lead has a very low lead to demo ratio, I could give you all the leads you want, but that lead isn't worth that much. But if the ratio is very high, and in fact, he was he was seeing 30 and 40% lead to demo ratios. That's amazing. How much conversion have you, where have you seen conversion like that? That's right. Pipeline? Not in the top of the funnel. Never in the top of the funnel. Yeah. This is, so this is literally, it's literally like top of funnel to bottom of funnel in a second. Why? Because it's a trusted customer. And a trusted partner, there's nothing better than that. So that's, that's I think, why this conversation is so critical for partner leaders and ecosystem leaders is that you've got to find those lagging and leading indicators. Uh, lagging indicator sells your business case. Leading indicator sells conviction to stay the course to get to the lagging indicator. So that's, I think, a very good example of, uh, of what to measure. Uh, of course, there's leading indicators to lead to demo. Like how many leads did you provide? Did you do it at scale? Did you communicate it? You know, was there, but all that stuff is sort of like, uh, you know, on, on a journey, you need to do your key stopping points and your key destinations, right? And those are two examples of that. I mean, we could, we could go further, you know, in the case of, of the consumption model, the mutuality model, right? There we see the growth in NRR as a function of trackable integrations. So like if I can show that I had an integration, it got to a certain stage and then by pushing it, I was able to grow that and I can actually track it back to the integration. I don't have to guess about that actually, not conventionally a sourced revenue indicator, but it's just as good as one because you have hard data to say that resulted, that drove the NRR. Right. That's why that understanding the workloads and kind of how those workloads are tied to the consumption, I think becomes pretty critical. Exactly. In the case of the hyperscalers and the monetization of their marketplaces, because they transacted the marketplace, that's another really good one. Everybody loves where was the transaction happening. If the transaction is happening in the marketplace, it's from an ISV that's driving consumption. That's another one of those bang on metrics. Can't you can argue. Marketplace conversions. Yeah. Can't argue with that one. Yeah, that's right. Very cool. And again, I think these are. This has been a fantastic set of conversations. We're coming at the end of uh, end of our cycle here, but can't thank you enough for both sharing the insights, sharing the stories. I think really putting some very provocative ideas out there. And I think a lot of folks will figure out how to make them work. So thank you, Alan. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us on this leg of the platform journey from Tidemark, a growth equity firm purpose-built to help companies win and scale. For more insights, subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.tidemarkcap.com slash the platform journey. Thank you.